session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwe, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week from this past week, the book of the week for this week is Why by Mario Livio. Why? What makes us curious? Looking at what makes human beings Curious, um, including looking at some of the neuroscience and things of that nature. I look forward to reading this book and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week that I'll talk about tonight is Mindful Eating on the Go by Jan Chosen Bays. Mindful Eating on the Go practices for eating with awareness wherever you are. And so to begin with, what is mindful eating or what does that mean? And she defines mindful eating this way. She says, mindful eating is deliberately paying attention to what is happening both inside yourself, in body, mind, and heart, and outside yourself, in your environment, while you eat. Mindful eating involves full awareness without criticism or judgment. And so you've probably heard me talk a lot about meditation and mindfulness on this show. And so mindful eating just means bringing that attitude of mindfulness, of awareness into your eating life. And reading the book, I became aware of how unaware I tend to be when I eat, that I am not very mindful in eating. I tend to eat quickly and even don't always enjoy the foods of things I eat. And I was enjoying um, uh, oat milk latte, which I do almost every day from Blue Bottle Cafe. And then I realized I have it almost every day And I get them because I like them so much, but I don't tend to pay attention to how enjoyable it can be. And so someone reminded me of that or showed that to me that I wasn't really paying attention to food in general or even this drink that I like so much. And I slowed down, which is a part of mindful eating is slowing down while you're doing the process. And I was able to take in the flavor much more and in a way reminded me of why I like this drink so much, but it was interesting for me to see how unaware I tended to be. So the opposite of being mindful, we can say, is being mindless, where we're not even taking in what's going on. And as she points out in the book, eating can be a very enjoyable or pleasurable activity and one that we do several times a day. But most people don't tend to focus and pay attention to what they're experiencing while they eat. And as a result, they don't really get that much out of it. They don't get as much pleasure as they could actually get if they paid more attention. And even more so in the United States, we see that people eat faster than they do in most other countries. You travel to some places in Europe and a meal takes a few hours and it's more of an experience um, rather than just something to do to get food inside your mouth and in your stomach. It's something to enjoy together. But in the United States, we tend to think of eating as something that we just have to get through or get done 
and we try to do it in some ways as quickly as possible, but removing the actual enjoyment of the process. So mindful eating is trying to be more aware or becoming more aware of the whole eating experience, and I'll get into some of what those various aspects can be. And sometimes people ask, well, if I do mindful eating, will it cure me of binge eating, or will I lose weight, or will I do this or that? And it's possible it can help with those things. It's not just going to take away those problems, but they do find that when people are more mindful of their eating, they tend to eat more appropriate foods and more appropriate amounts of food. So it can be helpful just by simply bringing awareness to your process of eating. Now, early in the book, she discusses the nine different types of hunger. And so that might surprise you just to hear of the nine types or the nine aspects of hunger, but I'll go through each of them very briefly to give you an idea of these different types or aspects of hunger and also how they each can pull us in different directions, um, sometimes without our awareness. And a big part, again, of mindful eating is being more aware of what is my hunger or what is my hunger telling me. So the first one she mentions is eye hunger. And so this is where our eyes are telling us we're hungry. Our eyes are telling us what to eat or how much to eat. And this can have a big impact on how much we actually end up consuming. For example, if we give you some popcorn, if it's in a huge container and filled all the way up, you're more likely to eat more popcorn than if you were given a small container. Or food appears to be less when it's on a bigger plate. So if we give you the same portion of food and it fills up a plate, you'll think you have a lot of food. But if we put that same portion on a huge plate, you'll think you don't have a lot. And so in various ways, we see that the eyes can affect how much we eat. Um, or oftentimes we hear that saying of the eyes are bigger than the stomach because sometimes you think you can eat so much by what you see, but actually when you eat it, it might be too much food for your body. So that's the first type of hunger, eye hunger. The second one is touch hunger, that actually we get something from the texture of food or touching food. And as she mentions, the touch hunger can include what you experience in your mouth, but also what you experience with your hands touching the food. And there's research showing that when we actually touch our food or eat the food with our hands, you eat less than if you eat it using utensils. But nonetheless, there is this aspect of hunger, which includes the touch, um, which could be the texture also of it, but also just you touching with your hands as well. The third one is one that's not to me as significant, but still has significance, is ear hunger, the sound of food. Now, there is um, definitely something we feel when we bite into, let's say, a carrot stick, if it's soft or if it's crunchy and has that crisp sound to it, we have a different feeling about how good it is, or especially with foods like chips. We bite into them and it makes a loud sound and that can feel good. Or if you like cracking seeds, some people like to crack seeds and those can make sounds while you're eating them as well. All of that can be aspects of the ear hunger. The fourth one is one that might be considered an underrated type of hunger or one that we don't think of as being so significant or as much as it is, and that's nose hunger. And usually when we think of tasting food, we think it's all happening in the mouth. But really actually a huge impact or a huge part of how we experience the taste or flavor of food is through our nose. And actually when you're chewing the food, it goes from your mouth through into the nasal passage and you smell it. And you will realize how important smell is for eating when you lose that sense. 
hopefully not permanently, but even if you experience a head cold and you have congestion in your nose, you'll recognize that food doesn't taste as good or everything will taste more bland. And that's because the mouth, the tongue has the senses to taste food, but it's not as flavorful as when you have the whole nose and mouth involved together. So our nose hunger plays a big part. Or if you've walked by a Cinnabon at an airport or something that has a a smell coming out of a bakery, you sometimes get drawn to that. The smell itself can make you want to go eat. So nose hunger is actually a big part of our experience in eating. Then we have mouth hunger, the actual experience you have in the mouth of the food, including the tongue, which does a big part in the tasting of the, the food in different ways, and that has an impact. Next, she goes to the stomach hunger. Now this is now we're getting more into the body and things that a lot of people don't pay attention to. And she says to even pause and ask yourself, how full is my stomach right now? Half full, three-fourths full, not full at all. And to actually listen to that and pay attention to that, something that most of us might not do. Again, going back to the combination with eye hunger, you look at the plate and you think, well, there's still half a plate of food left, so I have to keep eating. But we don't really check in with the stomach to see how much food do I need. And the stomach doesn't taste different types of food. It's more focused just on volume, how full it is or how empty it is. And so our stomach plays a big part, although we might ignore it, of telling us how much food we actually need. And then so related to stomach hunger is the next one that she calls cellular or body hunger, which is essentially what do your cells or what does your body want? And as she talks about in several parts of the book, as kids or babies, we were much better at paying attention or eating in a mindful way. Kids, even if you give them a lot of food or a little food when they're very young, they tend to eat the same amount. But as they get older, this tends to change because like lots of things, we take away their ability or that connection they have with themselves by telling them things like, well, you have to finish your whole plate. Or she mentions how people sometimes will say there's kids starving in Africa, so you have to finish all of your food. And so kids start to learn to ignore the messages from their body that tell them what they want to eat and how much they want to eat and pay attention to more of these external cues, which unfortunately means they're going to be disconnected from what the body actually wants. But going back to another example of when you're sick and you might feel something differently, often when you're sick, you listen to your body more. You say, you know what, I'm sick and I feel hungry, but right now when I think of a lot of foods, it makes me feel not very good. But if I think of having some soup and crackers, that feels right to my body and so I'm going to have that, give my body what it wants. But usually we don't pay attention to what does my body actually want? What does it need? We just eat based on other reasons or other things we tell ourselves, such as what time it is, or I'll get into a few of the other types of hungers that have a bigger impact on deciding what we eat, but it's not really what our body actually might need in that moment. And that leads me to the next hunger, which is a very important one, and that's mind hunger. So our mind very often will tell us what to eat, what not to eat, and have lots of judgments, and that's a big part of what the mind hunger does, in determining how we uh, relate to food and what we do eat. So she has the example of someone saying they want a Diet Coke, but then they have one message in their brain saying, Coke is bad for you, haven't seen the videos where it shows how bad it is, and another one says, you shouldn't even want to have sodas, then one says, but I'm tired, I need the caffeine. So we have these different voices in our head that have lots of judgments about food, that have a huge impact on what we choose to eat or choose not to eat and the feelings we have about what we eat. So you'll probably notice about almost every type of food, you have some thoughts and feelings about them. 
when it comes to sweets, you might think, oh, it's bad to want sweets, so I shouldn't even like them. Or when it comes to some vegetables, you might say it's good to like them and you shouldn't want them. Or sometimes we're not sure what to think because some research says eggs is bad for you. Some will say eggs is good for you. And so your mind will have these conflicting messages. But she talks about how we tend to overthink what we should and shouldn't eat rather than paying attention to our body to help guide us towards what we want to eat. And the last one, the last of the nine hungers she talks about in some ways can be the most significant in misleading us in what we eat, and that is heart hunger. Or really when she says heart hunger, what she means is um, emotional eating, so to speak. And so often we all know that if we're feeling stressed, we might turn to certain foods that we wouldn't at other times. Even it's so cliche, but you see it in movies that if someone goes through a breakup, they're having a box of chocolates or a tub of ice cream because we know that they're trying to comfort themselves or this is something that we all do. Or some people might experience a different periods of their life. For example, during the menstrual cycle, some people will have different cravings that they'll want certain foods more than at other times. They might not crave them as much. So you might experience these things have an emotional component to them as well. So what we find is that people are very affected by how they feel. And as she puts it in the book, we're in a way trying to fill this void in our heart or try to soothe an emotional feeling with food, which doesn't do the job and unfortunately likely will make things worse. And rather what you want to do is pay attention to what does your body want. Very often if you're feeling stressed or if you're feeling down, you might need connection or you might need support from someone or maybe you can go exercise or do something else, but your mind will tell you to try to seek the comfort from eating which really won't accomplish the goal anyway and will end up hurting you nonetheless on top of that. So when she talks about nine different types of hunger and mindful eating, when you put it all together, she says we can ask ourselves who's hungry, meaning which part of the nine hungers is telling me to eat right now. And if you pay attention to this, you'll probably notice that a lot of times it's not that your body really needs food or you're really yearning for it because your body needs to get those nutrients it's something else that's pushing you. Maybe it's because you say, oh, it's 12 o'clock, it's lunchtime. You don't really pay attention. Am I actually hungry? But your mind hunger is just telling you, well, now it's lunchtime, it's time to eat. I'm not even going to listen to my body or pay attention to that. I'm going to go straight to lunchtime and that's it. Or you're feeling down or you're feeling stressed or you're feeling alone and you might turn to food to fill that void, even though it won't do that. So she says that before you eat, check in with yourself and rate each of these hungers from a scale of one to 10 and to see which one is really driving you towards the food and driving you towards eating because that can have a big impact. And also in the book, she talks about different exercises that might be able to help you um, to become a more mindful eating. For example, as I mentioned, slowing down is a big part of mindful eating because to be aware of something, you have to take the time to pay attention to it, but also take some time. And so for example, one is to have one bite at a time or to put down that utensil, meaning that between every bite you put the spoon or fork down, wait for a few seconds, chew thoroughly, and then pick up the spoon or fork again. Most people will notice if they start paying attention to how they eat that very often you're eating and you're already preparing the next bite and before you swallow that bite, you already put in the next one and you're still constantly chewing and constantly putting food in your mouth and don't take the time. And so she gives some suggestions and exercises that you can use, such as that of taking time 
um, even treating yourself as a guest. So making your meals a little bit more, not necessarily formal, but make them more special and doing different things to slow down, pay attention more to what you're eating, have more awareness. And through that, you actually can enjoy eating better and have a healthier relationship with food as well. So a lot of the teachings in the book were on a more basic or simple level, but it makes a lot of good points. So I think if you're interested in mindful eating, and I got some responses through social media of people who were interested, and I think um, everyone can benefit from eating in a more mindful way. Anything we bring more mindfulness to uh, is helpful, and definitely eating is one of those things. Check out the book Mindful Eating on the Go by Jan Chosen Bays. Again, the book of the week for this week is Why by Mario Livio. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I was talking about the book Mindful Eating on the Go by Jan Chosen Bays and the ways that she talks about we can try to bring more mindfulness into how we eat. And during the commercial break, was talking here in the studio about how most of us don't eat very mindfully at all. And I, I actually, the last meal I had was not very mindful in how I ate the food. What was that Persian restaurant? Very yummy, delicious food. And I was eating quite fast, something that I tend to do and realizing that it was very tasty food, but I wasn't really taking my time to enjoy what I was eating. And so many of us find that we eat very fast or we eat faster than we'd like or we think we should eat fast. And even sometimes we think the food will taste better if we eat fast. Amir here in the studio was saying he thinks that's actually why he likes to eat fast to make the food taste better. Now, maybe that's his experience, but even in the book, she did talk about how when we slow down, we actually tend to enjoy the food more because we enjoy the flavors more. And in a way, this is how life is also. A lot of times we think we should be in a rush. She talked about it also in the book that we're rushing from finishing one thing because we have to get to the next thing. And when we finish that thing, we rush to get to the next thing. And she says, it seems like I'm rushing from one thing to the next all the way to rush to what? To my death. And that's what I'm almost rushing for and realizing that we're not actually enjoying life or living life. So just like how mindful eating involves slowing down and allowing ourselves to take in the flavors more and to take in the experience more, when we talk about mindfulness in general, we're talking about how it makes us enjoy the flavors of life a little bit more as well. So when we become more mindful, we notice that a conversation we ordinarily had that maybe felt boring, we wanted to move on to the next thing. If we bring mindfulness and awareness into that conversation, we actually enjoy it much further. Or if we used to take a walk on our street every single day, and there's a bunch of things on our street that we usually don't pay attention to, when we actually take the time to notice it, we take in a lot more. And so the theme of mindfulness, uh, and actually in the book, every chapter she had, if it talked about an exercise or talked about something, it said how to remind yourself or making reminders. Because unfortunately, we tend not to live very mindfully, and we have to remind ourselves to become more that way. And going back to what I talked about in the previous segment about children, if you notice children, one of the things that you'll experience with them is that they're very in the moment. Maybe it's partially because they don't have things to worry about the way we think we do, or they don't have as many things on their mind. But nonetheless, what we see with the child is that they're very in the moment. They're playing and they're fully engaged in that play. 
or if they're talking about something, they're telling a story, they're engaged. Or even when they're listening, they're very much engaged with you and they can be very mindful. But like many things, we lose this ability or connection to ourself. And even in the book, she talks about how we unfortunately become more and more disconnected with ourselves and with the experiences we have to the point where we're not very mindful of what is going on. But that's something I really love about interacting with children is that you'll see, a, for example, a baby and they really have no choice but to be mindful. They probably can't think about much else, but they're very engaged in whatever experience is happening. And so when we become more mindful, we can find that just listening to some music can be an amazing experience or talking to a friend can be something quite enjoyable. The more engaged we are in whatever we are doing, the more we can enjoy that. And especially I see this happening in relationships in romantic relationships where people feel like they have busy lives or even when they are together, they feel like they have other things they have to do. And so they're not actually enjoying each other as much as they can. They're not getting as much out of the relationship, as much out of the interactions, not because there isn't something great there, not because their partner isn't this wonderful person and a wonderful um, individual with different aspects of a personality and different sides to themselves, but because they're not seeing everything that's in front of them. So what mindfulness encourages us to do is to experience our life more fully to experience our interactions more fully, and in that way also experience our relationships more fully. So if you are talking with your loved one and you're at the same time on your phone checking something or if you're really not paying attention to them, the conversation is going to feel boring to you. You're not going to get very much out of it. And so you might think your relationship is boring or your partner is boring, but the problem is actually that you're not being engaged in what is going on. You're not being mindful of that interaction. Or if you actually try to get to know the person that is in front of you, you'll see that there's a lot more there than you ever could realize until you start to look into who they are. Just like actually, if you become more mindful, if you practice meditation, you get much more in touch with yourself. And you start to realize there's so many more aspects to yourself that you were not aware of or you did not see. You start to understand yourself better in ways that you never did before when you just slow down. And so going back to distraction, one of the reasons why we tend to distract ourselves so much is that we don't want to feel what we're feeling. We don't want to think what we're thinking. Most people, when they get a chance to be alone, what's the first thing they do? They take out their phone. They unlock the phone and then they're going through something. Usually not because they have something to do. It's not that they're really busy and they have to do something. Yes, sometimes, of course, that is the case. But most of the time, even if they have nothing to do, they'll go back on Instagram for the 10th time that day or Facebook or whatever other app just to distract themselves. I've done that before myself. I do that all the time where I've noticed that I'm trying to just distract myself rather than I have actually something to do. Because what happens when you put away your phone and just sit silently with yourself? Well, you usually start to think or feel things, and some of those things might not be very comfortable. They might not be things that you want to think about or feelings that you actually want to feel. So you would rather distract yourself and not feel those things because that's more comfortable. Because we have this feeling that those are not good feelings or things I shouldn't be in touch with, and we'd rather get away from them. So when we look at mindfulness and meditation, what we're talking about is actually taking the time 
to pay attention and become more aware of ourselves. But before that, we have to be willing to take what might feel like a risk and what can feel uncomfortable in taking that risk of trying to understand ourselves fully and say, I'm okay to see what is there. I feel safe enough to try to understand myself better, knowing that some of the things I see I might not like, but I trust that I'm good enough that I can look within myself and see what is actually there. So we have to be willing to take that step, which means we have to first accept that I'm okay, I'm good, I'm enough. So whatever I see is okay, is going to be good and will be enough as well, even if some of it isn't very good. So I'll recommend to a lot of my clients in therapy to start meditation when they ask about techniques or exercises they can try. And it's very challenging for many people to try to meditate. You'll tell them to meditate for just five minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you tell people to spend five minutes without their phone, without any distractions, and just to sit alone and try to focus on their breathing, most people will tell you that is a very difficult exercise to do. It can be very challenging just to sit there with your thoughts for five minutes. And most people will actually tell you when you ask them how it went that they thought it was much more than five minutes. They thought the timer on their phone was broken or they forgot to set it because it feels like so much longer just to sit there with their thoughts. And this is an interesting thing to hear when you think about how hard it is for most of us just to be with ourselves, to be with ourselves without distractions and to connect with ourselves. And the problem is that we're not, when we're not very connected to ourselves, it becomes, impo it becomes impossible for us to connect very deeply with anyone else. If I'm not fully connected to me, if I'm not deeply connected to myself, then in my relationships, I can only be so connected. In a way, we can say that the more deeply I'm connected to myself, the more deeply I can connect to someone else. Or the limit to how deeply I can connect with someone else is how deeply I've connected to myself and who I am. And so you'll see that people who have an easier time connecting with people, and I don't mean this in the superficial way because you can make friends and someone could be very charismatic and know the right things to say and do to connect to lots of different people in a surface type of a way. But when we're talking about, talking about an actual depth of connection, it involves people who have that ability to connect to themselves. If I'm in touch with my own pain, then I can be there truly for your pain. I can connect to your pain and feel your pain. Because when we talk about empathy, which is the process of someone feeling something for someone else's feelings, if you're sad and I can feel some of that sadness myself, I have to be connected to my own pain and my own sadness in order to be able to do that. But unless I'm connected to that, if I stay disconnected to that, I can never truly connect to myself, but then I can never truly connect to someone else either. So first we have to take that time to be mindful to ourselves, to pay attention to who we are. And only then when we do that, can we truly connect with someone else. And hopefully then we will take that risk of trying to connect with someone else, but in a very deep way meaning that we can just talk to each other without distractions or we can just listen to each other and not worry about other things or try to focus on other things and just hear what our partner has to say and actually recognize that as much as we might think that things are boring or that our partner is boring, it's not actually that things are boring, but it's that we're afraid to take that risk to get a little bit deeper and to get a little bit closer. 
that although we think excitement is out there somewhere else, it's not actually the excitement that we're seeking. It's that we're trying to get away from this discomfort that we have trying to get close with someone else. One of the biggest issues I see in the relationships I work with in therapy is that couples actually aren't as deeply connected as they need to be to begin with. And so as a result, one, issues are going to become up, come up because of this lack of connection. And two, when issues do come up, there isn't as strong of a relationship to withstand whatever they end up facing. The connection and the friendship that you create with your partner is like the foundation of a building. And the stronger that connection is based on how deeply those roots go into the ground, the more strong that relationship will be and the more it can withstand with the challenges that come within the relationship and the stresses and challenges of life that come outside of the relationship. For example, I was talking to someone today about when people have a child and when a couple has their first child, we usually see a dip in marital satisfaction or in relationship satisfaction. And that partially is something natural that we tend to see, but how much it affects them or how much that can either make or break the relationship can be very much based on how strong that connection was before they had the child. And so unfortunately, a lot of people, they see trouble in their relationship and they might think, you know what, if we have a baby, that's going to bring us closer together. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. What we see is that whatever issues you have just become magnified. And if, for example, you weren't very close in the relationship, what you actually might find is that, let's say, the mother gets too close to the child or because there's an emptiness in the relationship with the father, might feel a need to feel closer to the child. And actually, the husband and wife might get even further apart than they were before the child came into the picture. So we want to create a strong relationship a strong friendship with our partner that then can withstand whatever else we're going to face as we go forward. But we can't create a strong connection unless we're willing to fully see our partner and to be present and mindful with them on a deeper level. We can't create a strong relationship if we try to stay distracted and if we're not connected to ourselves first. So this book was Mindful Eating on the Go, which is about bringing mindfulness to your eating, which is really important and very meaningful. But really the bigger question or the bigger concept is how we can bring mindfulness more to everything that we do and make it a way of being. And yes, for all of us virtually, it's going to take a lot of reminding. We'll go to an automatic state or we'll check out of our own experience. And we want to remind ourselves to be mindful. We want to even set alarms if we have to or tell people or keep reading about it to bring more awareness. And we might think of mindfulness as this Zen meditation type of a technique that we use sometimes, but really mindfulness is about living life more fully, being more aware, experiencing what's going on. And with that, every experience can become more meaningful from eating that the book was about all the way to our romantic relationships, which can become deeper and stronger and more meaningful. So ask yourself when it comes to all aspects of your life, but including your romantic relationship, how mindful am I of the relationship and how mindful am I of my partner? This could be very critical in determining how close you become with each other and how strong of a relationship you can create. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. So in the first segment, talked about the book Mindful Eating on the Go by Jan Chosen Bays. And in the second segment, talked a bit more about mindfulness in general, but connecting it to relationships. And then in this last segment, I wanted to talk about mindfulness when it comes to parenting, which can be very, very important. And another aspect of life that is maybe one of the most important roles you will have, if not the most important, but one that you definitely definitely want to bring mindfulness to. So when we talk about mindfulness when it comes to parenting, what kind of things are we talking about? What do I mean? Well, one big part is just taking in the whole experience even more, being aware of what is happening even more and connecting to your child more, being bringing that awareness. And one aspect of that involves screen time. And so parents will often look up articles or even when they come to therapy, a big question they will have is about screen time. How much is okay? What age should kids be allowed to watch screen time? What kind of videos and footage and things is okay and not okay and all of that, which is important. But there's another very important element and aspect of screen time when we're talking about parents and kids, and that's parents' screen time. So often parents are playing with their kids, but they're playing with their kids while, while they're also emailing or texting or doing their own things on their phone. And so parents will say, oh, I, I play with my kids all the time. But if you take a closer look at how they're playing, you'll see that not a lot of that play is fully engaged play or communication and connection. And a lot of that involves mindlessly being on their phone or connecting to their phone or watching TV or watching their laptop or iPad rather than talking to their child. Now, I know it's very easy for me to um, chastise parents for being on their phones when, of course, I understand you need to be on your phone sometimes and do things on your phone and use your phones. Even sometimes you're doing something for your child on your on your phone. So it's not that you shouldn't be on your phone at all, but to be aware of how the phone is affecting your connection and your communication with your child, because very often it's getting in the way. And so when I talk about technology, I make it very clear, like most things, it's not all good or all bad. But one of the biggest things when it comes to things like our phones is to recognize, is it creating more connection in my life or is it taking away connection or creating disconnection in my life? So with your phone, if you are a parent and you find that you're looking at your phone while you're playing with your kid just to check Instagram or just to chat with your friends, you might be actually doing something that takes away from the connection you have with your child. And that is very important to be aware of and to think about. So that's one thing to be aware of how much awareness you're bringing to your parenting. Now, related to that, I'll mention this, as I was mentioning before, that parenting is one of the most important positions or roles you'll have in your life, but it's also probably the most difficult one that you will have. And so related to that is this concept of not judging yourself. And this is one element of mindfulness and meditation practice that I really like is having a viewpoint or a stance of non-judgmental awareness, meaning that I'm going to be aware of things that are going on, but I'm not going to place judgment on them. I'm not going to say this is good and this is bad, or I shouldn't have done that or should have done this. Because parents have a lot of pressure on them from themselves, but also from society and media in general to be a good parent. So we hear a lot of parents will have to deal with issues of going online and being shamed by other parents, or even in the street, they might be shamed by someone 
for being a good mom or being a good dad or how they should do things or how they shouldn't do things. And this has a big impact on how they feel about themselves as a parent, which is, of course, a very difficult thing for them to already do. So that's something to keep in mind is to not judge yourself as a parent. doesn't mean we're not aware. It doesn't mean that we say everything we did was good, but we pay attention to it without trying to judge ourselves or shame ourselves for how we are being a parent. We have to have that. And actually, what can be good is that if we start to have that stance with ourselves, we can also bring it to our kids in our parenting to not be so judgmental of them, but to they should do this and shouldn't do that and make them feel ashamed for the things that they do. So we want to have the mindset of what Winnicott would call a good enough mother or good enough parent and have that theme that being a parent is difficult. I'm going to make mistakes, but mistakes are okay. My parent, my child can be okay even if I do make mistakes. That's fine. So we want to make sure we're connecting and engaging with our kids, putting away phones and other screens if that's what's getting in the way or whatever else might be. But another part of mindfulness is to see things as they are or to pay attention to what is around us. And when it comes to our kids, this is really critical because what anyone wants and especially what our kids want is to be fully seen for who they are who they actually are. And we can only do that when we pay very close attention to them, to notice them, notice their unique characteristics, and to actually see them not just as all good, but even to see their flaws. If you tell your kid you're the most handsome and the tallest and the smartest and you're 20 feet tall and you're whatever you might think and think that that's giving them a compliment, although those are all positive things, it doesn't actually help your child feel seen. It doesn't make them feel like my mom or my dad sees me and knows me and loves me for who I actually am. Many parents themselves, unfortunately, receive a lot of negative words such as you're stupid, you're ugly, you're this and you're that. And we saw how bad that was. And so we think that the opposite of that kind of parenting is the solution. So I should just heap praise on my child and tell them indiscriminately that everything they do and everything they are is perfect and good because what I got was so bad, I want to give them the opposite of that. But the opposite of something really, really bad is not usually the good thing. It's usually something more balanced, meaning that you see your child for what they do and what they don't do. So if your child is very good at drawing, you can notice that, say, wow, you're so good at drawing. But if they're not very good at sports, you don't have to tell them you're the best player on the whole team. You're better than everyone else out there when that's really not the truth. It's not really going to help them feel good anyway, and they won't feel like you actually see them for who they are. So as a parent, you want to actually pay attention to your child and be realistic even with the feedback that you give them. It doesn't mean you have to tell them negative things about themselves or emphasize those things, but you don't want to just praise them in a way where it's not actually connected to seeing them for who they are. And lots of parents do this, and you see this a lot in Iranian families where they just praise their kids in a way that is that indiscriminate, that they're better than everyone else and that they're the greatest and all these things when maybe that feels good momentarily, but it's very empty in how it feels. And eventually when they're out in the real world and they see they aren't the tallest or smartest or whatever it was you told them, they're going to feel very low and very weak and they might doubt themselves and doubt the value that they have. So see your kids for who they actually are. Pay attention to them. Notice things they do. Notice when they have a bad day. You don't have to emphasize it, but you can recognize it and show them, I see you. And of course, anyone who listens to my show will know that notice even their negative emotions and that those things are okay. Don't put those things away. If your child is sad, you don't have to 
tell them you don't see that they're sad or pretend like it is not there. If you see that they're angry, you don't have to deny that they're angry. You can tell them that you see they're angry and that you recognize that they might even have a reason and validate those emotions. Let your child feel seen for everything they are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and they'll feel then that you fully see them and you can feel more fully connected to them. So mindfulness is something very important to bring into your parenting. Of course, we're talking about the kid, but also yourself. We have to be aware of what we have went through and who we are, because that's going to affect how we parent our kids. If you, for example, had a hard time in school making friends, and then your child is having a hard time making friends in school, this is going to affect how you react to that. Maybe you're going to get upset with your kid because you're wishing they would overcome what they did. Maybe you'll be too soft on your child because you're afraid of pushing them because you knew how hard it was for you. But nonetheless, you have to be aware of how consciously or unconsciously you're going to play out your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own experiences on your child. And without that awareness, you're going to hurt your child. And so this is another aspect of mindful parenting is being aware of who you are, what you've been through, what your childhood was like, what your parents were like, and how all of those things will impact how you parent your child. We have biases that are going to affect how we view everything. What's most important is to be aware of those things. So that's another aspect of mindful parenting is being aware of what we have been through, who we are, and how we're being affected by what our child is showing, because that can affect how we impact them. Or for example, parents, of course, if you have multiple kids, one of them might be more like you than the other kid. And sometimes parents will favor that child unconsciously who reminds them more of themselves. And actually sometimes parents will be meaner to that child that reminds them of themselves because they have some anger or hatred towards their own self. And so they take it out on that child when they see aspects of themselves in that child. So it's all about, again, awareness. It doesn't mean we're always going to react the same way. It doesn't mean we're always going to respond the same way. But if we're not aware of how things are affecting us, we will take those things out on our kid. And our responsibility is to do that as little as possible. Now, a last aspect of mindful parenting is to teach your kids mindfulness, which is something that they already know and are connected to, but in a way, don't let them lose that. And at times you can also help remind them to be more mindful or even to meditate. Now, with everything, we always want to make sure we do something ourselves before we teach it. So if you really want to teach your kids mindfulness, first practice it yourself. But also when it comes to working with your kids or teaching your kids how to be mindful, you can point out to them, hey, kids, let's go for a walk and let's enjoy the trees and the plants and let's pay attention to them. Let's look at the sunshine. Sometimes it can feel so nice when the sun is shining if it's been cloudy for a long time. So let's go notice the sunshine and see how it feels on our skin. Or let's put away our phones as a family and engage in conversation together. Show them that there's so much to enjoy in the world and that they can experience things in a different way if they put some of their distractions away and actually embrace it. And related to that, you have to actually allow your children to be bored sometimes. I think even when I was a kid up until now, there's been a huge difference in how much boredom kids experience. Before, kids would just be left on their own to figure out how to have fun. Now parents think that their job is to fill every minute of every day of their kid's life with play dates and classes and different things, and their child never has a moment to just be by themselves and think and try to reflect on things on their own. 
And we want to give our kids actually that space. It's, it's great to take them to different classes and give them those kinds of experiences, but we also don't want to take away their time of just being by their own self with nothing to do to figure out what is going on and allow them to be mindful. That's wonderful. And lastly, another way, of course, to teach them mindfulness is to actually meditate with them or show them how to meditate. Kids naturally are more mindful than adults, but we can also remind them to meditate and that can be very helpful. There's actually been some schools that when a child needs to be disciplined or has done something wrong behaviorally, rather than punishing them, they send them to a meditation room to calm down. On Thursdays, I go to school on wheels and do some tutoring of children, and they have a refocus room. So sometimes when a kid is acting up and having a hard time staying focused or maybe it's getting close to having a tantrum, they can go into this room, relax, take some deep breaths, and then come back out once they feel ready to get to work and feel more calm. So sometimes we think of meditation as this really complicated thing that is hard to do and that's something for grown-ups to do, but children from a very young age can do that and they'll feel the benefits of just taking a few short, a uh, few um, deep breaths to calm themselves down or to become more aware of what they are feeling and to get more in touch with themselves. So you can encourage your child to be more mindful as well and you can even practice meditation with them from a very young age. I've seen kids as young as four and five even focus on their breathing or pay attention to how they breathe or take deeper breaths, and it can have a very positive impact. So today's theme for the show was mindfulness, starting with the book Mindful Eating on the Go by Jan Chosen Bays, which is about how you can bring more mindfulness to your eating. But we want to bring more mindfulness to everything we do. So it can be your eating. In the second segment, I was talking about our romantic relationships and how much we tend not to be fully aware of what we're experiencing, sometimes by choice of what's happening in front of us. And lastly, about parenting, how the more mindful we are, the better we can be engaged and connected to our children, the better we can also act as parents by being aware of what we're doing and also help our children to at least not lose that mindfulness that they already maybe have, but also instill more of that feeling or that perspective of mindfulness in everything that they do. And so mindfulness isn't something that we just have moments of we're trying to move towards being more mindful all the time which might need reminders but it can be definitely worth it so hopefully you will try to focus on this aspect of living be more mindful of what you experience and you'll find that your experiences will be even more meaningful all right we've reached the end of tonight's show again the book of the week for this week is why what makes us curious by mario livio thank you to amir here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fatty delaqui have a wonderful night mm-hmm.